welcome to this episode of Battling with Business with me, Chris Kitchener. And me, Gareth Cannon. In this podcast, we're hoping to explore ideas and concepts around teams and teamwork, leaders and leadership, and all things in between. It's a discussion between a former Royal Marines officer and a product manager from the world of business, uh, comparing and contrasting our experience as we attempt to work out what makes teams, leaders, and businesses tick. And actually, this is a part two episode. We foolishly thought we could talk about decision making in just one episode, and we very quickly worked out there was more for us to talk about. So that leads me neatly to this week's podcast is sponsored by a very special bottle of wine. And for those uh, in the audience, and we know we actually have a number of North American listeners, tonight it's evening in the UK, and Gareth, I think it's a little bit different where you are tonight. Uh, but this evening, I will be sampling a delightful bottle of Charles Swab Merlot. And for many of you, you will say, I have no idea what you're talking about. But for those of you, particularly on the West Coast, and uh, those of you who live in the Seattle area, it is known as Two Buck Chuck. It is a wine that is available for less than $3 from a particular supermarket. My wife described it as, quote, like vinegar last night. Uh, Gareth, uh, what's, what's your drink, I think, for you this afternoon? Yeah, so it's just after lunchtime here. I'm still out in Canada. Uh, and I was about to say I'm feeling particularly sort of envious of you drinking your lovely glass of red wine in the in the evening uh, back home but I'm not sure I am actually <laughs> having heard your description I believe it was described by Monty Python as a fighting wine I think that's how they fighting describe wine. it yeah so I uh, as I said I'm out in Canada so I am drinking a nice hot cup of Tim Hortons coffee and it is it's bright sunshine but it's Still below freezing and there's still a lot of snow around. How much snow? Come on, because in the UK, about three millimetres is considered uh, shutdown weather. How much snow have you got out there? So at the moment, I'm just looking out the window. There is very little actually on the road. That seems to have mostly melted away. But we had about probably four inches throughout yesterday. Given given your experience in Norway and the Arctic Circle and Royal Marines, there's a bit of me that really hopes that the weekends, because I know you're out in Canada for work, that in the weekends you go wild camping and you build yourself a snow hole to survive in. Tell me that that is what you do at the weekend. That is exactly what I do at the, at the weekend. Not you do at the weekend, Chris. is it? Definitely not, is it? don't just go to local bars and drink drink beer and eat wings okay well let's let's get us back on track which i think i managed to do in the last episode very poorly we the point of last week's episode was decision making it turns out there's a lot to it i think you had talked about a number of factors we started with data information and intelligence we were yep. just starting with some other influence or other factors that influence decision making you talked about or we talked about strategy Take us from there, Gareth. What are the other factors that we should think about in terms of decision making? Absolutely. So just as a recap for our listeners and perhaps for those who haven't listened to last week's episode yet, um, we drew the distinction, as you said, between data, information and intelligence as the input factors that set the context from which we make decisions. So that's how we understand the world around us, how we then recognize that there are decisions to make. And then of course, it's what we use to then make those decisions. But then there are a series of influence factors, 
of which we've already covered strategy. And we've said that we make decisions, but you know, these lead to outcomes and there are knock-on effects and we make decisions that lead to other decisions having to be made. And what we're trying to do is align our day-to-day decision-making, either as individuals or as organizations, or even as machines making decisions to our strategic goals that we're trying to achieve. And a really good example of that, I think, at an individual level is, you know, a lot of us are constantly battling with our own consciences to eat healthier, drink more water, go and do more exercise. So strategically, our long-term goals are about, you know, our long-term health. It's about building routine into the way that we live our lives. But our short-term decision-making is often about, you know, current comfort uh, and conditions. So it leads me nicely onto the net influence factor, which is consequence of decision-making. And the immediate output of that decision will not just be what you've chosen to do in the decision itself. There will also be a consequence in terms of how much success or, or blame is resting on your shoulders as the decision maker or perhaps as part of a team that made that decision. And of course, there is also the immediate output in terms of, you know, does this create a whole lot more work for me? Does this mean that I can't do something that I was planning to do? Does it interrupt and disrupt what the normal status, uh, status quo is? So from an individual point of view, you know, I might have this long-term goal that I want to get ripped in the gym and I want to shred all this weight that I've got and, you know, live like a movie star. But actually, I'm quite enjoying watching this Netflix program and sitting in my living room is a lot more comfortable than getting up and going out and going for a run. So the immediate consequence is something I'm then having to consider with, along with what are the longer term strategic goals. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pass over the fact that as you were talking about getting a shredded body and not just sitting on your backside and watching it, you were staring at me. So I'm, gonna, I'm just going to pass by on that with my my fantastic body so that's not a problem for me everyone unless you've met me. absolutely not but, Chris. But I, not but, I, but I do i do want to ask about that you've i think you've described very well that we make decisions based on what we believe might be the consequences rather than just did we did we do the thing or not do the thing yeah. do you think thinking about the consequences is a good or a bad thing or just a thing because you, you might argue you should not worry about the consequences. You should do the right thing. In fact, that's a phrase that I think people use quite a lot. And there's another yeah. group of people that might say, you'd be an idiot not to think about the consequences. What, what's your thinking on that? Well, wouldn't it be lovely if I just said, well, obviously you should get off the sofa and go to the gym. That's the right thing to do. Just stop worrying about it and do it. But the reality is that isn't going to help anybody. People listening to this podcast aren't going to go to the gym because I've said next time you're struggling to get up and get off the sofa, you're going to go to the gym. That's not how it works. So, of course, you have to consider the consequences and you have to start thinking in advance about how you set the conditions in order to mitigate the negative effects of consequence and reinforce the positive effects of consequence. And so, yeah, this is not a podcast uh, about you know, life coaching or, or getting fit and healthy. But if you do go and listen to those podcasts, they will talk about routine. 
they will talk about creating incentives to, to get you to do these things. So of course, we absolutely need to recognize human nature, team dynamics, um, and therefore be thinking about the consequence of decision-making before we're making those decisions. And it's also really important from a managerial point of view. So as a leader, thinking about how best to set the conditions for other people so that they're not impinged by the consequences of their decision making. That's, that's, there's there's a, an example which I remember from now many years ago where we we made a change in the way we worked and someone remarked to me, uh, you have to make sure you don't offend anyone because you're changing something that someone around here did a while back. The point being is, you should be thoughtful about the consequences of you making this change. And I thought yeah. that was a really, it, it, it struck me as a really interesting point to make. The first thing is, a consequence is, I don't want to alienate my team. F full stop. I mean, let's just be very clear. I'm not one of these people that says, I don't care. I'm going to do it because it's awesome. And that's all. Clearly, building a team, building trust, building confidence is all important. But the second bit that was really interesting to me was, and I, I haven't quite figured this out, is was I being told not offending people was more important than actually creating a better outcome? In that case, I don't think that's quite what was, I don't think that was the, the statement of intent, but I was, I worried that that was the implication. In other words, hang on a minute, I think, and, and put this a different way around, I think we should build an environment and a team where it's not about did someone do a bad thing that led to us to change it, it was yeah. to create an environment where everyone was interested in continuous improvement and therefore actually people didn't feel offended if there was a change, mm. quite the opposite, they were like, this is a good change. I, I brought this amount of change and in a sense it led to this other. So that was really interesting for me in terms of consequence, which is maybe it goes back to the question I asked you, which was about the balance of should you think about the consequence? I, I almost wonder whether yeah. my answer is yes, you should, but you shouldn't let fear of the consequences stop you making the right decision. Well, I, I think your example was was really good because it not only highlighted the consequence, but it, you also then talked about the mitigation to that consequence, which is about creating the collective idea of continual change for the good. Um, and that kind of mitigates this idea of, well, we used to do it this way, so have I been doing it wrong? And, and I think that leads on to one of the biggest problems I find with consequence as a, as a factor of decision-making is the inertia of change getting people to do things differently because they don't know what the results are going to be of that. And what you end up with is risk aversion. And risk aversion is a cancer on change imperative in organisations because what you end up with is if you do nothing, it might be the wrong decision for the organisation. But because nobody can point the finger at me and said, you were the person who initiated change, you were the person who made the decision, I will be okay. 
And therefore, what you've got is a disparity between what is right for the organization and what is right for the individual. What you want to try and do is create a situation where people taking risks and then the outcome of that decision, no matter whether it's good or bad, are appreciated for the fact that they made the right decision, even if the outcome was not what was anticipated. And I've talked before about General Stan McChrystal a couple of times. Um, and and I, I'm a big fan of Stan McChrystal's philosophy around decision making. And he talks about creating a culture where you, you never punish mistakes. You always punish negligence, but you never punish mistakes. So if people do make a change, they make a proactive decision to do something, and the net result is a bad result, well, the organization has learned something. I... But that person hasn't done something wrong, whereas not making the decision to change may have been the wrong thing to do. That might be negligent. I, I, I mean, I'm unsurprisingly, I agree with this. And I, I think it's, it's a really important and more nuanced point than, than I think most people think. So in my world, there have been times and places where there is almost this religious cry of fail fast. And, and I, the, the reason why I kind of slow down there is because it's one of these examples. I think people have heard me have this with a number of, of, of examples like, or terms like MVP, but fail fast is one of those ones that I'm very thoughtful about. I think yeah. the correct or the, the right meaning of fail fast is exactly what you've said, which is we should feel confident. We should feel empowered. There should be a trusting, no, no blame situation yeah and therefore if we fail a that is not a bad thing but b it enables us to learn and continue i think said carefully like that it is fail fast is highly highly valuable i've found people who almost get to the point where if i fail and i fail fast somehow that is a good thing no no, no. Yeah, it's a yeah. good thing if all those <laughs> other things are true, but just failing, that actually isn't the goal of it. You don't win because you failed. And in fact, you get lots yeah, of... Yeah, change, change for the sake of change is not the purpose. Mm. It's change for better outcomes. And I, I had a really interesting conversation with a, a friend of mine who's an ex-Harrier pilot. And I'm, I'm going to hopefully bring him on as a, a guest at some point, where we were sort of exploring this idea of how do you... How do you create better organizations that are constantly trialing new ideas in uncertainty in, a, in an environment where some of what you do, you know, there is absolute criticality. You're flying at you know, eight miles a minute. You're using highly complicated technical machines. There are rules that are in place absolutely for safety purposes that, that should not be broken. Um, so how do you create these learning and, and the fascinating conversation that basically came down to exactly that point that change rewarding rewarding failure because it's innovative is a corrosive thing rewarding status because you're not taking risk is a corrosive thing and what you absolutely need to do is reward good behavior that is learning from adaption to the situation whilst recognizing that you're trying to always create the best outcome and so 
in the fast jet fighter pilot world, they're constantly adapting to new tactics and new weapons and new radars and all these kind of things. But fundamentally, what they don't want to do is create a maverick culture. And I've deliberately used that word because people will get the reference. And there are things that I really don't like about the Top Gun films because they encourage this idea of breaking the rules because it's cool. Actually, what you want is people who adapt to new situations and aren't afraid to take risks and adapt, but they're not taking risks because that's what is the cool thing to do. And if you get that environment right, you're you're creating all the other ingredients to make the other things work. You've empowered people. You've discussed what your goal is. You've you've yeah. you've you've told people I have to trust you. It, it's um I th I think I probably said this in a previous. I'm sure I've said this in a previous podcast, which is when empowering people. For myself, I found it important that if I'm not feeling uncomfortable about the extent to which I've empowered someone. I'm probably not empowering enough. What do I mean by that? If I don't, yeah. if I don't empower someone to do something which brings risk with it, I'm not. Imp otherwise, I'm just getting them to do stupid things that are not that important. That is not empowering. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and so I, I think when you do that, it's good. Okay. Well, we've talked about consequence. Maybe. Well, I think we've, we've started sort of, to talk about the next one. I which think is so. Culture. So. Yeah, we, we, we do need to move on because otherwise we'll end up dragging this over three podcasts and nobody wants that. So culture is the next one. And I think we've already moved into that space. So how do you create the conditions from which consequence becomes part of the positive process rather than the inhibitor in people making good decisions? You know, famously, Peter Drucker said, culture eats strategy for breakfast. Now, I've read a couple of Peter Drucker's books. I'm not an expert, but I get the impression what Peter is not saying is strategy is pointless. Stop focusing on strategy and start focusing on culture. What he's saying is you cannot do strategy unless you align culture to the conditions to make strategy happen. Strategy is just as important as it ever has been, but you cannot do it. You cannot create change in an organization under conditions of uncertainty which is ultimately what strategy is all about in order to create favorable advantageous outcomes if you don't have a culture that not only understands the strategy and we've made that point many times but also create the conditions to allow people to make good decisions and when they don't make good decisions to learn from them so part of what we've just been talking about in terms of empowerment and getting people to make decisions not because change is cool or you know not because failing fast and breaking things is the objective it's absolutely not if they do break things they're not blamed for it as long as they weren't negligent they weren't deliberately trying to break things but more importantly there is a culture of fessing up there's a, a culture of putting your hand up and saying i made a call i did it for the right reasons this is why I did it. I think many of you would have probably done it. And this is what happened. And this is why we need to either look at whether we would do that again. Maybe it was luck or whether we need a different approach. Do we need more information? Do we need more intelligence? Do we need, do we need other people involved in this decision making? Do we need to align this better to the strategy? Whatever it is, but having those post-mortems and we talked about this when we talked about Agile, 
and the retrospectives and the importance of those retrospectives is about creating a culture of mutual trust and collective belief in the vision of the organization. And there's one word you haven't used, which I think is really, really important in here. And I don't know whether it's a, a separate influence factor or whether it's, it's probably more culture, which is accountability. The, the, Absolutely. The, the idea that you stand up and say, I made this decision, it was right, well done us, or it was wrong, is around the idea that you, you, you want my, I've answered my question, it's culture. You want a culture of accountability. You want the yep. culture of this was something I was responsible for or I was on the hook for, and I continue to be, whether it was positive or negative. And that's, that's for, for more senior people, that's actually relatively straightforward because often there is a, you know, there are roles and responsibilities, there are KPIs, there are OKRs, there are all sorts of mechanisms yeah. that tie us very closely to accountability. But what's interesting is, is you go through the organization the term accountability becomes a lot fuzzier. I'm not a manager. I'm not a leader. When you say I'm accountable, that feels like you're ready to point a finger at me. That's not what I mean. Yeah. Accountable means do you do you have a culture in which you feel you can own something or assume ownership even when it's not explicitly called out? I think I think the accountability part is very important. I know that that takes us a little bit away from factors that account for decision making well maybe I, it maybe it touches sort of peripherally there i think i think they're all related of course and, and you can't have accountability without referencing responsibility and authority and i think what's really important to recognize is they are connected they're related but they are mutually exclusive so you can be accountable but not responsible and what i mean by that is you are accountable to that decision but the outcome of that decision is that the responsibility for that outcome can be retained at a higher level. So your boss can be responsible for the outcome of the decision that you're accountable for. And that creates a situation where you put your hand up and say, I made that decision. I'm accountable for the results. And the boss goes, yep, you're accountable for it, but I'm responsible for that. And therefore any of the, fallout from the fact that this has gone badly will will rest on my shoulders because i know you did it in good faith and i trusted you and we set the conditions for this so all is good and that makes people feel that they are accountable for their decisions without the fear that you know they're going to get a bad report and they're going to lose their job or they're, they're just going to be blamed for, and, and you end up with that blame culture and, and then it all becomes very insidious. So it, I think that is a really important part of the culture. It occurs to me the accountability one, and then we should move on because I think we're, we're, we are getting through these influence factors, but it appears to me, maybe, maybe this isn't right, but when you are accountable for something or when you feel accountable, all of a sudden you treat decisions in a slightly different way. Something that yes. you might have done casually or automatically when someone says, when my, my wife says, Chris, you need to take your kids to trampolining tonight. All of a sudden, I am now paying attention saying, okay, I need to make a decision about how I do. I wonder whether accountability is a really nice little check there to say, don't just do it automatically, have a think. But anyway, we've talked about yeah. strategy, consequence, culture. 
what have we got left? See if we can get to that before we get to Okay. The yeah. So we've only got two left. The next one is heuristics, biases, and noise. So we talked already, uh, we did a whole episode on heuristics and bias. But just to remind everybody, heuristics are rules of thumb, little cheats that we have where we rely on our system one thinking, our subconscious to make decisions for us about things that we have evolved to make decisions about. Biases are learned behaviors that, again, create these little rules of thumb. And we, we had a really in-depth conversation about whether bias was good or bad. And, and yet we said it's not either. It has good or bad outcomes. And there is a lot of reasons where we need to be very, very cautious of bias. And there are a lot of reasons why, actually, the efficiencies created by having biases, by having heuristics, are also really, really valid and important. But we have to recognize they impact the way that people make decisions. They also, importantly, impact the way that machines make decisions, because ultimately, the way decision making is designed in a machine system was designed by people. The training data for how machine learning algorithms work, there are plenty of sort of quite famous cases now where in the medical world, for example, most of the data is taken from medical students. And so it's mostly Western cultures. A lot of the data is taken from men. And so systematically, there are biases built into machine systems which have negative impacts on women. And the same for racial disparity. You know, machines can, facial recognition systems have been primarily trained on data sets that are overwhelmingly white. And therefore, they're less efficient for other ethnicities. So this is not just about people, and we have to recognize that, but heuristics and biases affect the way that people, organizations, and machines make decisions, as does noise. And we've not talked about noise before. We should, we, I'm going I'm to put a little thing there, which is I, I think talking about AI three years ago, five years ago, it'd be, oh, how futuristic and how navel-gazing, given where we're going I think the point is, my assumption is, decision-making is going to be impacted more and more by AI. So we, we should come back to that point around, mm. if you, and th this is almost sort of a thing to plant the seed, if you have a black box thing that gives you answers and you do not know how they came to those answers because you press the button and it said the answer is, how do you know whether there are biases built into that and the examples you gave are excellent mm -hmm. biases it will be increasingly difficult to understand is this a good answer i am receiving but anyway you were just starting to talk mm -hmm. about noise yeah so with that in mind dare i say we should probably do a whole podcast episode on the impact of ai on decision making oh, um, and, absolutely. And on, on absolutely. business anyway but let's put that to one side we're talking about heuristic bias and noise. Noise in this context is just a way of saying there are variants in the way that we make decisions. So Daniel Kahneman, the, the very famous Nobel laureate in behavioral economics, wrote a, bit, a book literally called Noise, exploring these ideas around the variance in decision-making. So this is different from bias. Bias is you tend to go towards a particular decision 
as a result of external influences that have created your experience base. Juristics, you tend to go towards a particular decision because of the mental shortcuts you take because we're human. You know, the gambler's fallacy, et al. Noise is just a general variance in decisions. And there's a really good uh, example that he uses where he talks about judges handing out sentences. Now, a bias would say a judge who has a particular bias might hand out longer sentences to men and shorter sentences to women if all the other conditions were the same. You know, the, the crime was the same and the background history was the same, etc. Whereas noise says the length of sentence handed out by the judge varies on a whole load of other factors. Maybe um, whether his sports team won in the game on Sunday or whether his daughter has good or bad grades at school at the moment, whether his um, relationship with his wife is you know, going well or going badly, that will create variance that isn't part of a bias or a heuristic, but absolutely is something we need to be aware of when thinking about how decisions are made. And there's a really important aspect to this because we quite often talk about the value of expertise. And, and how we need decision makers to be experts in a particular field. But expertise doesn't reduce noise. So what we need to try and do is to create mitigations to reduce noise. And it's a very, very different process to reducing bias or reducing heuristics. So there's a last one I think we were going to talk about just before the break. What's the last? Last element, because I actually, I'm cheating. I know what the last one is, but I- You do, because we talked about it. This is, this is one that I, I, I feel passionately about, which is quite amusing or quite, <laughs> quite a, a thing, because what's the last one, Gareth? So we just talked about the variance of decisions based on external factors. And I used a couple of examples that link very neatly into this last one, which is emotion. So your noise variance is going to be driven largely by the, your emotional state because it's all about you know, how your brain is functioning and emotion is effectively the balance of various hormones and chemicals in your brain in your decision making system and it's really important to recognize emotion as a decision making factor and i think it's often misunderstood and misrepresented and so we talk a lot about um, you know, a happy workplace and making sure that people get on and making sure people feel empowered and motivated. And, and that's brilliant. And we absolutely need to do that. But I don't think we focus enough on the emotional state of individuals at the particular point when they make decisions. And I think bringing this all the way back to military decision making is probably a good start because there is nothing arguably more emotional than leading people in combat and where things like threat to your own life creates a nervous disposition. The lack of sleep because you are constantly fighting and therefore you are having to synchronize with a routine that is out of your control. And so you're probably operating you know, very, very tired. It's also physically hard work. So you're probably very fatigued. And then you've got people that you are 
probably the closest relational bonds you'll ever have. And those people are also in harm's way. So you are worried for your own safety and anxious and nervous about that. But you're also really worried for the people that you are around, the people that you command, some of which are probably getting killed or injured. And you're getting reports, if not physically seeing that, which has a huge emotional toll on your decision making. And I think quite often we we sort of using the benefit of hindsight, analyze good or bad military decision making based on you know, the strategic conditions, the tactical decisions where people were on the ground and all of that really important stuff. And we think about strategy, we think about the information and intelligence they had, we think about the culture of the organization, we think about potentially the heuristics and biases. We, I think, underestimate the effect of emotion on the ability for people to make good or bad decisions. I, I mean, I, I, as I said to you, I get passionate about this. I think emotion is, a, is, is critical, both in terms of as a factor, but also in terms of an approach to how you do these things as well. So I agree with that. And I, I, was, um, I, I was listening to another podcast and they were talking about how General Montgomery um, what, during the Second World War and his sort of major things was uh, would go to bed at, at, at 9.30 every night. He, he demanded he had a good night's sleep and didn't want to be woken and as a way of, of sort of mitigating. All right, well, look, let, let's take a bit of a break. We've, we've covered all of those. Let's come back. Let's sort of quick summary. And then what I'd like to do is maybe for the last sort of 10, 15 minutes or so, um, I'd love to ask you some questions because I think it's great that we've got this list of factors that affect decision making. Let's talk about what that real world impact is. So uh, we'll see you straight after this break. Welcome back. So before the break, Chris, you just talked about General Montgomery going to bed, religiously setting you know, his staff to, to make sure he, he goes to bed. Was it half nine every night? I believe it's half nine. I'm sure we'll find out it wasn't half nine, but I think I'm reflecting more my strategy for being in bed by <laughs> half time, given my age. And, and of course, we were relating that to the idea that your emotional state affects the way that you make decisions. And, and you know, I think General Montgomery is a, is a really good, tangible example of somebody who, you know, the higher up you are in the military, the less decisions you have to make, but the more important those decisions become. So as a, a soldier, a junior NCO, a junior commander, you're making lots and lots of very small tactical decisions. But ultimately, you know, the, the aggregate influence is massive, but that's spread across lots and lots of people. As a general, you're having to make some pretty critical decisions. And I think, you know, it's very understandable why you would protect your sleep like that. But I also want our listeners to think about how difficult it is when you're in a position of leadership where you've probably read lots of books about setting the example, leading by example, about being present to make decisions. How difficult it would be in a campaign where 
the fight doesn't stop at half past nine and everybody goes to bed. The fight continues. People continue to get killed. Maneuver continues to happen. Counter attacks are happening. Flanks changing all the time as things are happening in the battlefield. And you have a staff who are relying on you. How difficult it must be to say, right, that's it, I'm going to bed. Based on you know, the, the knowledge of the impact that would have on your reputation and also the personal guilt that you would feel of what if I sleep through something? What if I miss that crucial thing? And I, 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 I've had commanders who, who have you know, had this personal struggle and a good MA, so a good military aide or a good chief of staff or deputy will quietly say, you need to go to bed. I've got this. And, and I've seen that personal struggle that people have, but I felt it myself as well, where you know, there is stuff ongoing and you know that you are starting to get to the point where you're, you're beyond tired. You're now starting to hallucinate or starting to really struggle to comprehend really basic things, simple arithmetic, or having to ask people to tell you something two or three times because you're just not processing it. And yet saying, you know what, I'm good. I can stay up because I've got people who are out there in harm's way. How difficult. Uh, do you know, this is, I think, for those people who are sort of saying, well, I kind of get this, but I need more. There is a fantastic book called With the Jocks, and it was written by a young officer in the Second World War called Peter White. And he talks about this. There's a, there's, they talk about from just after Normandy to the end of the war. And, and just to sort of give a little bit of colour to that, he talks about the fact that um, it was summer in Normandy and the fighting happens when it's light but of course the problem is in the summer it's light until really late and it's light really in the morning so it turns out your window for downtime is very low and he talks about the fact with his responsibilities you know they would stop fighting and stop moving at let's say 10 o'clock at night he then had to stop make sure his men were fed and billeted he would have to go and talk to his senior officers about the next day. He would have to come back and then do paperwork, would you believe? He would have to write down action reports. He'd write letters. And so, and then now all of a sudden it's one or two o'clock in the morning. And then he would have to be up again because they were on the move at four o'clock in the morning because it was getting light. And to your yeah. point, what's interesting about that is you can do that for one day for two days, maybe for three days, the challenges you get, and we'll bring this back to the business world, is what happens if that's five days, 10 days, 15 days, which of course in military is highly possible. So I think I think that, go read that book uh, with the jocks, mm -hmm. um, really excellent book to give you a real world insight. And he writes really, really well. But I wanna, I wanna sort of give that reflection back and and at a slightly different angle about emotion. So in the world of product management, there are lots of factors which don't tell anyone, just distract us from being good product managers. Things like customers, things like leaders in organizations. There's all these things that frankly, as product managers, our lives would be better without them. In other words, 
there's that thing where you get the phone call in the morning or the email that says we need to do that thing which wasn't what you planned or perhaps yep. is directly opposite to what you think is good this this leads to significant emotion within teams and i've seen this again throughout my my career which is and and i know this is going to sound odd there are a few things which I would say, look, I've been doing this now for nearly 20 years, write this one down because this one's really important. And that is in product management, it is critical. You are product managers without emotion. And I want to just talk for two seconds about that. What I don't mean is that you shouldn't be passionate or excited or engaged about your product and customers. Actually, that's really, really important. You know, in, in a sense, you need to love what you're doing, the people you're doing it for, why you're doing and what you're doing. Now, I remember when I was back at Adobe, decisions were coming down from the senior leadership, which I felt were not going to help our customers. And that made me angry. And it took me quite a while to realize that that emotion I was feeling in that case, anger, it could have been excitement, actually made me a worse product manager. And actually as product managers, our job is the easiest thing in the world. It's a list of things in a specific order. You start at the top and you go down. And, you know, for extra points, you figure out how long each one will take. If someone comes and says, I want to take your list and I'm going to shove my thing in your list, it makes us really emotional. If someone comes and says, I've got a thing and I demand you do it. Oh, that's easy. Where's the thing? Here it is. Where should it go in my list? Number three. Okay. And then we work down. So that removal of emotion, you can be more effective. I think that makes perfect sense in a job where actually the emotion is the distraction rather than the, the actual problem that you're making decisions about. There's a book by Simon Sinek called Leaders Eat Last. Yeah. And it's reinforcing this idea that as a leader, you're not privileged. You're not in a position where you've earned the right to be better and have you know privilege over your subordinates you actually have earned the the responsibility to manage people by leading by example by you know allowing your people to eat first and it's a very military kind of example that he uses but it's this idea that you know the soldiers will eat first because they're the people that you need to get back out into the fight and and so it kind of is counter to this idea of the Montgomery saying, well, I need to go to bed at half past nine. When the soldiers, you know, doing the fight, if you're in a Sherman tank in on the outskirts of Khan, you're not going to bed at half past nine. You're Isn't... not getting a good six hour sleep. So, so how do you... I was going to say, the trick is knowing up? which one. The trick is Absolutely. knowing where and when to operate. The trick... Absolutely. And the, the, the Montgomery and the, the Peter White example are far enough apart where it seems like a, almost too theoretical, but the statement says, I am tired, it is late, I'm in business, I have to stay, it's been a stressful two weeks, there's been a customer problem, the decision is, there's this work I need to do, or should I say, I'm going to stop now, and I'm going to pick it up tomorrow morning. You know, the, the classic, and I know these are sort of cliches, but if you have to write an important email, stop, write it, stop, sleep on it, look at it again, 
And the odds yes. are you will have a clarity you weren't able to have when you wrote the document about, is that what I wanted to communicate? Is that what it said? Uh, yeah, I think the point is, the trick is not necessarily which can I operate in, the trick is mm. knowing which, when do I swap? What's the situation? Yes. And that's- I've got a very simple kind of example of this, which was when I was on my first combat tour of Afghanistan, we had just flown into the forward operating base where we were working from up near Sangin in the in the Helmand River Valley. And we were two or three of us, two or three of the officers from the company were standing around having a conversation about what we were doing, the operations. But we weren't under any time pressure. This wasn't an O group. We weren't developing a plan for anything. We were just chatting about the conditions that we found ourselves in. And one of the officers called over, he was the artillery officer, and he called over one of his soldiers and asked him to make him a cup of coffee. And so this soldier diligently got out his sort of burner, set it all up. It's actually quite a lot of effort to make a cup of coffee out in the desert. And sat there in the middle of these group of officers chatting and made us all a cup of coffee. And I felt quite uncomfortable with that. And I said, why did you do that? And he said, he was a more senior officer to me. And he said, well, that's, that's the privilege of rank, isn't it? You know, I have soldiers and, you know, I don't need to make coffee because I have more important things to do. And I sort of reflected on it and I was like, am I, am I oversensitive to this? Is it just how this works? Because I was brand new to, to this world. Um, and then a few months later, I found myself where it was, God knows what time it was in the morning. And I was writing a set of orders and doing what we call a combat estimate, working out, making the decisions about what we needed to do, how we were going to approach a problem that we'd been given, a, a patrol that I needed to devise a plan for. And one of my Marines had just come off sentry. And everybody else was just starting to get up to start preparing their equipment for the patrol. And this soldier who'd been on sentry was ready to go. And so he wasn't going to go back to sleep. And he was then just waiting. And there was another hour or so before I was going to be ready to give the orders. And so I asked him to make me a cup of coffee because I was in the middle of doing my job. And as I said to you, I think on the Counterparacy podcast, I, I always saw my role as not any different from any other specialist within my troop it was just my specialism was command and at that point I was doing my job and didn't have the time to stop and make myself a cup of coffee because I was doing the the orders and that to me seemed appropriate whereas you know eight weeks earlier when we'd been standing around chatting and somebody else had been taken away from whatever they were doing to make us a cup of coffee because we were officers, I think was really inappropriate. And that, to me, I think is the balance. Well, and I, and I, I tend to agree. And it's, I realise now almost every episode when we talk about a thing, it bounces off other things, which is, here's a different statement. When that Marine was making coffee, what was he thinking? Was he thinking, well, hang on, I want to get my head down. Why am I, you could make this coffee. Oh, you think you're better than, all of those negative things. Yeah. Flip, flipping it on its head, I would imagine, given the fact that I know you and the, the circumstance, actually what you were doing was saying, we're a team. Can I get your help to do a thing? And yes. I, I'd almost imply 
I bet you'd made coffee for the lads as well at some point because you said, I've got a brew on. Guys, do you want a cup of coffee? So I, I think... Absolutely, yeah. I think that, that you're right. That, that the trick is the same, the same decision in different circumstances can be good and bad. And maybe a way of sort of measuring this is, okay, what, what's the outcome and what are the implications that maybe I haven't thought through? And maybe, maybe that's, maybe that, I know we've only got a few minutes left, but I, I, the whole point of this was we talked about factors that affect decision-making when it was data, information, intelligence, strategy, consequence, culture, heuristic bias, noise, and emotion. The statement I think was, we haven't told you how to make a good decision. What we've told you is, if you have time, these are things you might want to factor in as you make a decision because each of these can have an impact. That being the case, and again, you know, this has literally taken us two episodes to go through this. And what we're talking about is a decision that needs to be made in the blink of an eye. How do we, you know, when you think about making good decisions, what do you, tell me a couple of things you personally think about that help you make better decisions, whether it's related to these things or else. I mean, let's let's make it really practical. We've got to make a decision. Are we going to go down the pub tonight or not? How do you go about saying, this is what I do to make better decisions? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's a really important question because it's about context. And the decision to go down the pub, for example, you know, you're not going to worry too much about, have I got the right intelligence you know what my emotional state how does it link to my long-term strategy what you're going to do is very quickly decide whether that's a good a good idea or not um it might link to a strategy i may have said to myself i want to not drink any alcohol because it's january and i want to do dry january and then you say come on gareth let's go down the pub and I might then think to myself, well, what's my long-term goal here? Do I have the willpower to go down the pub and only drink pints of water? And that might be a factor that influences my decision. But ultimately, it's not going to be something I spend too much time worrying about. I'm certainly not going to involve other people apart from perhaps my wife, because it's going to affect her in that decision-making. A different decision, though, might be about laying off staff or maybe about a financial investment or something that the consequences of and its effects on my longer-term strategies or the organization's longer-term strategies are far more important, in which case I am going to thoroughly want to know, have I got the right information? Have I got all of the information? Where are the gaps? What is the cultural um, impact on me in making that decision. And there's a really useful, I think, to, to summarize all of this, um, example of how humans are both very, very good and very, very bad decision makers, depending on the type of decision. So how many of you have sat on the sofa of an evening with your partner or whoever you live with, housemates or, or whatever it is, and struggled to find something to watch on Netflix. And you sat there, probably while your dinner's going cold or, you know, 20 minutes into sitting down and saying, come on, let's watch some television, let's relax. You're still flicking through the endless list of choices on Netflix 
and struggling to come up with an answer because you're over analyzing the problem you're thinking about the consequences you're thinking about will i enjoy this how much and ultimately you're 25 minutes in and you haven't actually watched any tv versus the average amount of time for somebody to decide or a couple to decide that they're going to buy a house five minutes and actually most of that decision has already been made in the first 30 seconds of walking through the door now just think about that for a second to watch something on tv something you do most nights that has very very little impact on your long-term strategy takes you 25 minutes and your dinner's gone cold and yet probably the biggest investment you're ever going to make that is going to have an impact on every aspect of your life you make that decision in about five minutes and actually most of the information is processed within about the first 30 seconds i i think i think i think you're right and i I, i'd also i'll give you the equivalent which is the going out with friends and choosing the restaurant conundrum which is very very similar the paralysis very similar but but i'm i'm gonna i'm gonna challenge you and yep. actually i'm not because i know these things can sit together even if they they seem opposite which is my tip would be slow down to speed up absolutely the, the and 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 what i don't mean is decision paralysis what i don't mean is well no actually gareth you should spend 20 minutes what i mean is before you make that decision, that fraction of a second instinctively, do I want to think a little bit more carefully about this decision? Do I need to think about these factors? Do I, is this an instinctive decision? The risk is low, the experience is high, I can do this one very quickly, or are there any little alarm bells? And I'll, I'll, I have a personal example not that long ago, which was, I made a decision and it felt like it was a quick and simple decision. I made the decision and a valuable member of my team was offended because in this particular case, I, I had, um, in a sense, I'd removed their authority and I had absolutely not meant to do that. But because I was like, that seems like a good thing. We're in a hurry. Let's go do that thing. I made a decision which I came to regret and I, I regretted how I'd disempowered a team member. I had regretted that I should know better. And it was just one of those things where it didn't seem like it needed a lot of thinking. If I'd have just taken a pause, just taken a pause and said, is this decision gonna, gonna actually cause bigger problems? So my one is, just that fraction of a second, is this really a decision that I can make instinctively, like make a cup, how do I make a cup of tea versus how would I do something and just slow down to think about it. I think that's really, really I, important. I, I think that's, yeah, absolutely. And I reiterate that point and sort of would emphasize the taking the time to think about what sort of decision it is. You also need to recognize that no matter what you do, no matter what role you have in an organization, no matter who you are, you also affect the way other people are going to make decisions. And so this is not a, how do I make better decisions? It's how do we make better decisions? And a lot of the things we've talked about, strategy, data management, linking data to intelligence, getting the right data that is processed in the right way to the right people, setting the right culture, 
the fact that culture affects decision making and decision making affects culture and seeing those relationships linking it to strategy everybody needs to know their part in the plan everybody also needs to know how their decisions are going to affect that strategy understanding the consequences of other people's decisions and how you affect the consequences of other people's decisions but ultimately important to all of this and and it comes back to so many of the things we've talked about these are complex systems volatile uncertain complex ambiguous and therefore the most important thing you can do is set the conditions for feedback so you can learn what works what doesn't work how you can improve your decision making processes so i do a lot of work where i go into organizations and i say you your there's a disconnect between your data science processes and your strategic thinking yeah so you've got loads of data that's been done over here creating what you think is insight but it's not actually affecting your strategic decision making you've got a a problem with consequence because you've created a cultural risk aversion or whatever it is but ultimately what i'm not doing saying here are the answers to make better decisions what i do is say here are some things that you need to think about and some information channels some communication channels you can create that will allow you over time to make better decisions it's it, it's a very subjective thing it's very idiosyncratic to the organization's culture and it's very easy for a consultant to come in poke around and say i would have done this differently or this is how you make better decisions and ultimately that's not helpful what you need to do is learn how you can make better decisions by creating those information flows and creating that feedback I, I think that's bang on. And I've got I've got one more thing, which is one of these, another one of these nuanced ones. It's so easy to do the right thing on paper and for it to fail. But this is another good one, which is you will almost certainly have people around you. We talked about diversity, you have different ideas, different ways of thinking as they see your blind spots. And so good decision making can include other people. Now that's like hopefully that's self-evident. The nuance bit, though, is about whether you want a committee or not a committee. So I, back when I was a young lad and I was joining the Royal Navy, we did things called command tasks. And I think we should, we should, that's another great topic, command tasks, because of what you learn from Mm. them. But in, in, we, we were taught how to do them. And the statement was, you have to, you've got a number of planks and barrels and you have to assemble them together to get over what was often described as shark infested custard never never sure why but the point is you had to you had to do certain things and there was there were ways you could do it and we were taught at the beginning you te- as the leader you tell the team what the problem is the outcome you want and you say does anyone have any ideas this was a great way of people going actually it turns out i'm a professional shark uh, uh, in, in infested custard getter over and this is what we do or whatever it might be But here was the nuance at the end, and I think this is really important. Gathering feedback from other people doesn't mean to say you need to follow their answers. What you're actually doing is saying, what have I missed? Is there more intelligence or information I can guide? And in fact, the way they taught us to do that was to say, at the end of the period, they they said you should do this for three minutes. And at the end of the three minute period, you say, thank you for that feedback. That was a good idea. That was a good... I have decided to do this. So use the, use the group because of their diversity, because of their expertise, because of their knowledge. 
but it's not a committee. It's not about voting for the right answer. It's them being accountable. So use the group, use the team, but then be accountable, make the decision. Yeah, absolutely. And again, you know, the balance of what type of decision is it? What's the time imperative? You know, sometimes you know, a decision just needs to be made. Yeah. Um, and you don't have time to you know, set up a steering group or send out questionnaires or invite people from across the organization to come and give opinions. The, and that's okay. And that's fine. And, yeah. and sometimes that is just how it is. If most of your decisions are made like that, though, you're going to create compounded error. Very well so, said. So again, being aware of how your organization makes decisions, who makes decisions, is part of the process of starting to identify blind spots, starting to identify compounding errors. And if every time you know we make a decision, it ends up with the same person, the CEO or the chief operating officer or the chief information officer or whatever, whatever bit of the organization we're looking at here, they get to say, this is what we're going to do. I've heard all of these views or, or I haven't. Then that's where there is potential risk. So yeah, diversity isn't about making everything democratic. And make everyone it's happy. About, yeah. And making everybody happy. It's about getting different views and ideas and giving people the equity to be able to express those views in a, a way that they will be thought about, assimilated, and taken into the decision-making process in the most appropriate and efficient way. So we've, we've taken two episodes for what we thought would be one episode, and I think we've still got a, an itch to scratch there, but I think we've probably come to time for today, so we'll, we'll call it there for now. Um, at the end of every episode, we say how much we want your feedback. And this is a perfect example. You know, what are the questions we didn't dig into? What is it we said that made you angry and waved your fist? As always, we uh, would love to hear your feedback. We have an email address, battlingwithbusiness at gmail.com. We are on Twitter at battlingwithbiz. Please follow, smash this like, I believe, or whatever the kids say about these things but you know follow us likewise if you like what you've heard if you think it's interesting one of the things that's really uh, exciting to us is that we can build an even bigger community so if you've listened to this episode and you didn't think it was a waste of your time please go find someone else a colleague a friend uh, family member and tell them they should really try this and give it a go we'd love uh, Gareth any last thoughts from you after our two episode marathon on decision making and the factors that affect decision making I now need to decide whether to go to the gym or not I think that's a brilliant brilliant way to end this and on that note thank you very much for listening and we'll see you all next time wonderful thanks very much Cheerio.